Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. And welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. On today's podcast, I had the pleasure of meeting and sitting down with Will Gayo, who is the co-founder at a company called Severa. And in this conversation, we kind of walk you through Will's entrepreneurial journey to date from medical school to co-founder, their first employee leaving on the same day that they started. Now they've got a team of 57 people. Will shares some influential people that have helped them along the way. We talk about work-life balance, touch upon the importance of taking care of our mental health, and we learn more about the company and how it supports general practice and primary care to support patients with long-term conditions. I really, really enjoyed it. And before we jump in, I'm going to ask two things of you today. And that is, if you like the podcast, I would love it if you shared it with just one friend. And also, it'd be great if you left us a five-star rating and review. Enjoy. Hey, Will, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm very excited. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Is it daunting being asked to come on a podcast or not really? You don't know what to expect, really. <laughs> I think it's no. a, a lovely, lovely opportunity to just speak freely. But at the same time, you also realise it's being recorded. So you don't know what to say. Yeah, I'm not very good. Lots of guests ask me to send the questions in advance. And I oh, just right. can't because I want it to be like a natural conversation versus here are my top 10 questions. Exactly. If we went to grab a coffee, I wouldn't expect you to have sent me some questions in advance. We just have a, we have a chat <laughs> yeah. and see where it goes, right? That's the vibe. So could you introduce yourself to our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So my name is Will. As you won't be able to see, I'm from a Chinese background. My parents moved to England in the 90s and we set up a, a small restaurant in South London, which is where I grew up. And so it was a very, very classic immigrant story where they didn't have a lot of money, didn't have an education, but they wanted a better future for their two children. So England was a great opportunity. So quite early on, developed an interest in healthcare. I think that was something that naturally, both from a probably an ethnic perspective, I think Chinese families tend to often want you to be a doctor. But I think also a combination of wanting to make a bit of a difference in life and also enjoy the sciences. So went on, luckily, to train as a medic at UCL in London. And it was a fantastic opportunity, really. It was a place where we met a lot of great individuals, a lot of open-minded, forward-thinking people. But I think quite early on, I realized that practicing clinical medicine may not have been the calling for me, even though I loved healthcare. 
And so one thing led to another, and that's where we got to where we are now. And so my title, as it were, is I'm a co-founder and also the person who leads the partnerships for a company called Suvera. You said medical school, you had a good experience. We see lots of things on the press around, is medical school all that it's cracked up to be? So can Mm. you talk us through what is it like and what are the issues that some students face now that you see? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, when I say it was a great experience, it was lovely because we met a lot of very intelligent people. We came across people who are leading their field in their respective professions. The other students were also people who were very ambitious. So I, I love the community. And obviously you had all the fun stuff with doing the surgical procedures, the cadavers where you had to like do that. So that was all very like you watch on TV sort of thing. So that was nice, but it's a very demanding course. There's a lot of content to be packed in in a short period of time and the stresses of exams aren't great either. So I know a lot of people, myself included, found that completely overwhelming. You had kind of one time in the year where you had to perform on an exam, both written and also verbal. So you had to basically have actors of patients and you had to communicate with them and get graded on how well you communicated. So as a result, I think a lot of people struggled with that, actually. And so I don't think people necessarily enjoyed it from that perspective, but certainly I think it helped you to mature and deal with lots of problems as a result. So tell us about Suvera. When did you found that? What year? We started hashing together ideas back in 2017, 2018, like super early. My co-founder was Ivan and Riz. Ivan was also a medical student. If you may or not have heard of him before, he's a very tall man. So I saw him everywhere and we were kept bumping into each other and I said what do you do and what are you interested in and he went oh, I'm, he- I'm interested in health innovation and I was like oh yeah me too and that's what sparked it off and then we took part in what they're called accelerator programs where it's like a, a formal program where you come together with an idea that's where it started and what we started then is completely different to what we're doing now but I guess that's the hallmark of trying to follow a yeah. problem. What does the business do what problem does it solve? Initially, we started trying to manage medications for people. That was actually the first initial thing. So we built a very basic app to help you track your medication. So if you were to take a long-term medication, you might forget to take it or you can't remember when it is that you have to take it. So we built an app that notified people didn't go as well as we'd hoped. <laughs> I think, I think, I think to, to, to be quite honest with you, I think we found that the demographic we were targeting, i.e. elderly people who had long-term conditions, didn't use apps funny enough. So that didn't really work. <laughs> How much money did you put into Business 1.0? I mean, to be fair, when we were medical students, we had no money. So we called upon other young engineers to join us. But in terms of what it translated to, it was probably a good couple of thousand into the low tens of thousands of pounds. By the time we actually raised our first amount of small money, we were still doing the app. So lessons learned that way, which is speak to the person you're trying to solve the problem for. You know, you're visionaries like Steve Jobs and you think, oh, you have to have this vision. And actually, I think it's probably a bit glorified. I think you have to just go out and speak to the customer and say, what is it that we can solve for you? And then go from there rather than trying to figure out everything on your own. So at what point did you go, should we just knock this on the head? We basically tried to sell it to patients that didn't work because they were like, well, I'm not paying for this. Then we tried to sell it to some GPs and they were like, we're also not paying for this. And then we actually spoke to Murray from eConsult. We were having a chat and he's so brilliant. I think he's one of the friendliest and warmest people in the industry. And he really just took us to his offices and showed us what he was doing and said, look, you've got something here. You're obviously keen to build something, but maybe focus it on stuff that actually helps the GP practices a bit more. You know, we struggle with managing long-term conditions and you've got a software that already patients are 
somewhat using, maybe not a lot, but some people are using. So why don't you try to think about how that could be incorporated? And so that evolved to then zooming out a bit and saying, well, what does medications form a part of? Well, it forms a part of people managing long-term conditions. So what if we tracked and monitored how people managed it? And that's what led to what we're doing now, really, which is helping general practices support patients who live with long-term ailments like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol. And the vision here is it's built over time, but really we want to move towards a healthcare system that's proactive. How do we get in front of the problem before a patient necessarily presents into a GP practice or unfortunately presents into hospital? What are the things we need to continuously monitor and check up on? So that's what our technology does. It enables people to submit their clinical readings from home and that comes to the practice. And then we manage that on the practice's behalf. So really a, an evolution from where we first started. And how many clients do you currently have? Yeah, so we think of clients both as in practices and patients. In terms of practices, we're of the time of recording in September, about 130 practices. And these are both individual GP practices and sometimes clusters like primary care networks. And in terms of patients under management, as it were, it's about almost 100,000 patients now with long-term conditions. So it's grown a lot since those days of the medication app where we couldn't get five people to use it. How big is your team? Oh, that's a good question. So we're about 57 people. And the reason it's quite, well, I think it's quite a large number from someone who's uh, never done this before is that half the team are clinical. So we've got a lot of pharmacists, we've got a lot of care advisors, some GPs, and they're the ones delivering on the care. So that's about half the team. And then the other half of the team are software engineers, product designers, and people like me who try to meet people and create partnerships. So that's the makeup of our team. So just so I understand, so say if I'm a patient and I've got high blood pressure, I mm. could take my readings at home and then I would submit my readings via your platform and then your team would pick it up on the other side. Then what happens? That's exactly it. So I like that you use platform there because it, it is no longer a mobile app, as it were. Like I said, we okay. quickly realized that. I remember there was one funny time, actually, that one of the first patients we tried to test this out with in North London, again, elderly patient, must have been about 72 years old. And I was on a call with her. And this was when we still had a mobile application you had to download from the app store. And I was on the phone to her and I said, can you see where it is on the app store? And she said, what on earth an app store, Will? I went, okay, what phone do you have? She was like, I've got a Samsung. I was like, can you see this triangle which says Play Store on it? She was like, oh yeah, I see the triangle. I was like, okay, click on that. We're about 25 minutes into the conversation. And I was like, can you see the word Suvera? She was like, no, I don't. I see Clash of Clans. And I thought, I just had a head on my hands. I was like, what am I doing here? If I'm taking half an hour to get one person onboarded, this is completely wrong. So anyway, we scratched that. And so now it's similar to the NHS app. So it's basically a web application. So the patient gets a text message from the GP practice even though it comes from us, but it's labeled as the GP practice. So Woodlands Medical Surgery, for instance, the patient clicks on the, the link and it opens up a website and they can put in their name and date of birth. And then they put in their you know, lifestyle information, their blood pressure readings. And that comes into our platform, which is then monitored by our clinicians. And it's kind of like an air pilot dashboard where we basically see all these incoming readings and things that are looking a bit elevated. Our clinicians know to act on those first. And then we basically telephone consult the patient. And then because our platform is then synced to the electronic health records like EMIS and System 1, that information then is kept up to date for the GP practice staff as well. So that's how we basically manage that flow of the patient journey. Got it. So where do you start? I know since you've spoken to Murray, that's loads and loads and loads of information. But when you think about GDPR and data protection and linking your systems so they talk to each other, 
we share a client so I'm getting to learn more about you guys but where do you start from that side yeah so we had a lot of ignorance going into it as medics you don't know what you don't know a lot of the time and so we lent a lot on other people who had started organizations in the NHS basically Murray was one of them. So he pointed us directly to what integrations we had to do, which people we needed to speak to. There was another gentleman, Stephen from Echo Pharmacy. He was also very influential early on and shared with us the person who led his IG and data governance. So we basically got embedded quite early on. And one of the great things about innovation in the NHS, which I think some people may disagree, but I think there's a lot of hoops to get through. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because having high bars of regulation is what makes the company we have here more legitimate and you can't just build something and then just ship it out to product uh, to patients and see what happens so there are data protection toolkits you have to comply with there are you know all these acronyms but they all have a standing there's a reason for it and it's about trying to speak to people who've done it before and building that knowledge base with experts really so we had a number of external consultants quite early on that helped us on that journey excellent can you share any mistakes along the way There were several. So like I said, I joked about the app side of things, but that was definitely both from a time and money perspective, like you said, was such a big mistake. And I think that's one of the things I often say to other innovators is don't get fixated on your solution. Really fall in love with the problem instead, because your solution is what you've conjured up in your head based on what you know. And what you need to do is take an early version of it and then bring it to your customers as soon as possible. Get out of your room. And start speaking to the practices or the patients, whoever your target audience is, and listen to what they have to say, because they're going to guide you to what the solution should be. And that's what we do still today. So we spend a lot of our time visiting surgeries and trying to dig deeper into what the problem is. So that was mistake number one is not speaking to the customer enough. I think mistake number two that we had was in 2022, we probably started trying to run before we could walk. So we had figured out that general practice was lacking capacity and chronic conditions was going to be a growing problem. And so we were signing people up probably faster than we could deliver on it at the time. We didn't have our operations in-house in a good way. So what that meant was there was just a lot more complexity when it came to onboarding and getting patients signed up and then getting all the integration set up. It just things that you thought would take two weeks took two months and then that impacts what your results are. So that was something that was a big learning, which is make sure you have that figured out before you start to scale up. So those were, I think, were the two biggest impactful lessons very early on. And I think probably on the third level as well is just on a more intimate point is that it's a lot of pressure you put on yourself when you're trying to run. And I'm sure you have it yourself where you wake up sometimes and you don't have anyone necessarily telling you what to do, but you know, you've got to push forward in some direction. So there's a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. And you often think that a startup is like a very quick sprint. But when you look at the average life cycle of a startup, it's like five years. I don't know anyone who's ever tried to sprint for five years, but I'm pretty sure you'll burn out at some stage. So we had to learn quite early on to just switch off, know that there's always tomorrow and really, really be there for one another. So I had some really tough times where I even had to hold the fort and let me take some time off. And likewise, whenever people in the team raise that, they're having a difficult time because we're all humans after all. I think we try to remember that we're here to help each other. We're trying to work in healthcare. So we should do the same to our own staff and team as well. So that was a really important lesson also. Have you got two co-founders or three? There's actually three of us. How do you split your responsibilities? 
So it's evolved over time. So Ivan, he's CEO and he works a lot on investor relations, uh, managing the board, and he's very product minded as well. So he spends a lot of time working with the engineers and the product designers to really think about the product. With my role, I also support with the investor conversations, but I'm much more around the commercial side of things. So speaking with partners, ensuring the client relationship is going well, and then feeding back any insights that we find from the market to inform what we build next. So like I said, it's kind of that feedback cycle of this is what we're hearing. We really need to be doing this. And then that works with Ivan. And then Riz, our third co-founder, he's non-medical. He's a designer by background. And we brought him in because we didn't know how to build anything. And he was the first person who actually showed us what to do. So he dropped prototypes. He's been influential because it's enabled us to bring a concept into life, show it to people, and then they can then say, actually, yeah, this works, this doesn't work. And then we spend engineering resource to build it. So that's the trio that we have. How often do you meet just the three of you? Every week, several times. We spend a lot of time debriefing, trying to understand what's going well, what's not going well. And we often just find each other in the corridor as well and just hash out ideas. So quite often. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call, or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. What does your home life look like? I have a, I was going to talk about my dog first, but I know my fiance will tell me off of that. So I've got a fiance. <laughs> we, uh, we've been with each other for about 10 years. So we met in secondary school. We got engaged a few years ago and we're planning our wedding. And then, yeah, we got a little whippet two years ago. It's a little small greyhound and he's brilliant. Christina, my other half, she originally trained as a psychologist, but now works as a primary care contractor in the NHS. We try That's to avoid... Quite handy. It is. It is. It's funny to see it from that angle, but we try to avoid any NHS acronyms over, over the dinner table. It's strictly just trying to enjoy ourselves because otherwise it gets a bit too much. <laughs> So how do you manage leading a growing startup and having a fulfilling personal life? Because running a business is is intense, it's full on. I think I've done a better job. You probably have to ask Christina this because I'm going to give you a very biased view of what I think. But I think I've done a better job at being a good fiance or partner since running a startup than I was before. Probably because I'm also more mature and a bit older, but I think I'm more fulfilled. And I think that when I was a medical student and was very lost in life, and I think probably at crossroads and was trying to contemplate what my next steps were, I got the sense that I wasn't fully present often. And I wasn't able to be my best self. So that was very, very difficult. And since doing what I'm doing now, even though it's more hours and more demanding and stressful, I'm genuinely a happier person. I feel like my days are more fulfilling. And I think that energy translates to the home as well. And I think she definitely feels that. 
That's not to say it's not been a lot of work in progress. I think she's very good at making me aware of what's important in life. So we always have our weekends for each other. We tend not to work late into the evenings, but I just think that energy is very infectious. And if you come back home from a positive day where you've maybe signed a new client or you've made a difference in someone's health, you're a happy person and you, you know, you come home and you go, let's go celebrate or you go do something. And it's that spontaneity and that energy that I think is important in everyone's life. I love that. What sort of leader are you? How would you describe your leadership style? I try to be as human as possible. I don't know if that sounds a bit cheesy, but I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to be a leader one day. I'm going to lead a big organization. There was none of that in my head. It was, I want to work with people to build something useful. And so the way I treat people or the way we have conversations is often, I try to talk to them on a human level. So sometimes I'll say to people, don't hold back what you're saying. Talk to me like we're in a pub. Because what I don't want is for us to be in like a one-to-one and then you to speak through gritted teeth and pretend that things are going okay. And then you go home to your other half and then just basically talk behind my back and say, actually, he's a bit of an insert yeah. word, right? And it's important that when you're such a small, close-knit unit to remove those politics and bureaucracy as much as possible, because fundamentally, Ivan, myself and Riz, we chose the team we work with. So why wouldn't we choose people that we gel with and that we can get along with? So I try to be someone who just relates to people on a human level as much as possible and then try to figure out solutions to go forward with it. That's my approach. I think so far it's been handy <laughs> because people do come to me quite a lot with their problems. But at the same time, it means that I'm also dealing with a lot of problems as well as trying to run the business, which can be difficult. So we do have a person who leads people now who's been very influential in that. But I'm still very much involved in a sounding board for people, which I embrace. If I was to apply to work with you guys, what qualities do I need to have? So we have a few stages of interviews. Obviously, we look at your relevance to the industry or the role that we're hiring for. And then the second thing is we ask you a values and cultures question. So we have an interview that's specifically focused on seeing if you'd work well with the team. And the values that we try to instill in everyone is to think very long term. So we don't want people to come in here with a short-minded focus. We want them to really believe in the mission of bringing healthcare to be more proactive. I mean, that's something that could take as long as it takes. So we want people to think long term. We want people to be trustworthy as well. So we would often throw questions about example scenarios of if they've deleted confidential data, how would you respond to it? And we just want to see how people think on their feet about it. I'm not going to give away all our interview questions. And then the third thing is we want people who are continuously seeking to improve. And we've seen this over and over again, that the attitude that people bring is a lot more important in some ways than the original skill set that they have because they're willing to learn more. And there's so many unknowns in building an organization that I think you just need those people who are willing to embrace the unknown and not feel afraid of it. So those are the three key areas. And if they tick all three and they have a good background, then we go for it. If I tick two, can I get in? You need to tick all three, but we have definitely accepted people where we know that there's some development that's involved there, but we have hard no's when it comes to the one like honesty and trustworthiness. If we do get the sense that actually this isn't going to work, that's a hard no. Is it hard to recruit? You've got clinician. Where do you find them? And how do you keep them? Yeah. The hardest roles that we have to recruit for are actually roles like engineers. So software engineers are quite hard to come by. The reason being is that the UK salary actually isn't as competitive as things like the US. The big tech companies just pay a lot more and have all these lovely bonuses. So if you're a very smart computer science student, you're more incentivized to go to those big names. From a clinical perspective, we find that we hire GPs, pharmacists who are prescribers, and also care advisors. Those are the three roles we hire for. 
In terms of GPs, it's not too hard because there's a lot that are looking for portfolio careers who want to work in tech. The hardest one is actually the care advisors. So those background is either pharmacy technicians or healthcare assistants. And we find that it's just such a broad catch-all term that the skill set and the interviews can be so wildly varied. People who've worked in acute hospitals, someone who's worked elsewhere. So that's actually a role where we've had the highest turnover at our company, where they've started and we've just not met their match. And then in terms of the prescribing pharmacists, which is the bulk of our workforce, we vet that quite heavily. They have to have worked in general practice, not just primary care, because there's a lot that have worked in community pharmacy. We only look for those who've worked in general practice and they have to be prescribers as well. So that already cuts out a big portion of the market. And it is hard to find the right one, but we've been able to consistently hire. We've got about 20 in the team now. So we've still consistently hired them and we've got more in the pipeline. But I think there's going to reach a point of saturation because there's such a highly sought after group of people. And I think you asked about retention as well. Our retention has been pretty strong, actually. We had one prescribing pharmacist who I remember joined on day one and then left on day one. He just looked at the tech platform and went, nope, too complicated. I don't want to do this. And it left. And we were like, oh. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that didn't go well. I think people have stayed because there's remote working, which is nice. You can telephone consult from home. I think we've tried very hard to contain their day. So we book the appointments on behalf of the clinicians and that's it. Their day is what they've offered the hours to us. There's very little, if any, overspill which I know when we worked in surgeries can often be the case. So I think that's been attractive. And to be honest, I think a lot of them are keen to see innovation. And so they give a lot of feedback. They do spend a few hours a week sitting with our designers and engineers to give feedback on, oh, this button doesn't work, or I'd rather if this template looked this way. So I think they feel fulfilled and involved in something. So it's been a really good experience, actually. And going back to your care advisors, what do they do? So they actually deal with a lot of outreach and patient engagement calls. So we try to make sure that the patients are seen by the right clinician, which is like a mammoth task that everyone wants to do, right? It's the right patient and right clinician. And the nice thing about proactive care compared to acute care is that you know what the patient has in advance. So you can actually book appointments for a prescribing pharmacist who is specialist in diabetes because you know that patient has got diabetes. But we know that probably myself as a patient as well, you don't always attend appointments. You don't, you're not always great at responding to things. So you do find that you need to do a lot of engagement calls, which means you're calling patients and hoping they pick up the phone. And you don't really want to be spending a GP's time, certainly, but even a prescribing pharmacist time doing engagement calls. So we have care advisors who are reaching out and coding in when they're reaching out, but their job is really to re-engage that patient and make sure that we get as many through the funnel as possible. It's like a sales pipeline in a way. You're trying to get patients through this funnel of engaging with the clinicians. And so they help to manage that side of things and they also coordinate diaries. So if clinicians are off sick, they can help to reschedule appointments. So they are becoming more and more clinically involved. So if a patient has got well-controlled things like diabetes or hypertension in particular, they can do things like give dietary advice and lifestyle advice, but they wouldn't be ones prescribing. They would then defer to someone else. Well, hopefully some people are listening and think, oh, that sounds cool. For my primary care network colleagues, why should they reach out to you? There's, I think, a few reasons. I think the first one is we know that recruitment in general practice is very, very difficult. And one of the things that we can support with is providing that additional clinical support in the form of pharmacists and care advisors, like I mentioned. But the thing that I think we try to do that makes us stand out a bit or we're trying to recreate is, like I said, that full end-to-end service for managing proactive care. And proactive care is only going to get 
more complex as people live with more chronic conditions. People aren't just on one disease register, they straddle multiple. And so the coordination is actually becoming more and more challenging for practice staff. And so when we come in and help our PCNs, we often bring in our data analyst who runs the searches. We have our care coordinators who book in the appointments and we basically try to do it as humanly efficient as possible so that patients get seen in as few as visits as possible for them so they don't get called in four or five times a year because they're on multiple disease registers. And that's only doable with upfront proactive analysis. And I think the the final point, which is there's just so many targets in general practice is unbelievable. I mean, we work with some areas in London where they have obviously the QOF targets, the IIF targets, then they have their local incentive schemes. And I think that can get quite overwhelming. And it's always hard to disseminate information to, especially if you have like temporary staff who come in, they're not going to worry about making sure that box is ticked. And so by having like a dedicated workforce who's specialized around making sure that chronic care is done well, I think that can be quite helpful. And I think the final thing to say, and I think probably why we're on this podcast together is that I think we're all hoping to see improvement and innovation. General practice is a very difficult place. I can see the staff are working their absolute hardest, but there's an unrelenting demand from patients. There's very high expectations as well. And I don't think that we get a good rep as people who work in primary care. Unfortunately, I think it's often seen as by the British public as something that could be improved. And so there's a lot of our existing partners who traditionally tech would call early adopters, where they're people who haven't seen all the data haven't seen that we're a well-polished service yet, but know that you have to take a bit of a risk to see some innovation and, and make some change. So those are often the people we gel with a lot of and work with in the early days. And what advice would you give to a budding entrepreneur knowing what you know now? I would say definitely look after yourself. I've worked a lot on making sure my own mental health is in a good place because if you're not in a good place yourself you're no good to anyone <laughs> you can't help your colleagues you can't help the patients that you're trying to work for so that's probably my number one thing and then secondly i think it's just not being uh, afraid i don't think if you just said to me when 2017 that we'd be where we are now I, I believe you but at the same time i can also imagine that if i was to listen back to our podcast in 10 years time i wouldn't believe where we are then and it's about constantly saying actually you never know what's going to happen and don't doubt yourself Thank you so much. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to contact you? Probably by email, actually. I'm quite old school. So my email is my name, will at suvera.co.uk. I'm fairly limitedly active on, do we call it X now? I think we call it X. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to do that. I <laughs> will always be Twitter. <laughs> so I, I do exist on there and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. Thank you for all the brilliant questions. I really appreciate it. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and i will see you in the next episode.